0: Welcome to a PEDRA publication presentation. We are providing this presentation in audio format for the convenience of listening on the go. If you'd like to view the video version of this presentation, you have two options. You can follow the link to join and view in the PEDRA mobile app or follow the link to YouTube. Both are provided in the description of this podcast. Don't miss any of our educational content make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast channel, as well as our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Colleen Cotton. I'm an assistant professor in pediatric dermatology at the Medical University of South Carolina. And today I'd like to talk to you about a paper that was recently published in the JAMA Dermatology Journal, called Association of Demographic Factors and Infantile Hemangioma Characteristics with Risk of Face Syndrome. So what does that mean? That means basically we've looked at, is there an association between different patient characteristics and a particular patient's risk of having face syndrome? So what is face syndrome? Uh, Well, it's an acronym actually made up of Uh, the first letters of the different uh, symptoms that can be seen with this syndrome. So it describes an association between large facial hemangiomas and multiple other abnormalities, which was recognized as early as 1978, but it wasn't really until 1996 that this term face was first proposed to describe the association. So the P stands for posterior fossa malformations which is the posterior fossa is this green area um, in this little skull if you're looking down from the top of the head. Um, And there can be malformations of the brain, uh, as well as in areas outside of the posterior fossa. The H stands for hemangioma. um, And this is the most obvious sign in most cases that there might be something going on And it's not just any hemangioma. So these are fairly common birthmarks, but the hemangiomas that we worry about for face syndrome are those that are large and segmental, meaning they appear to involve a very sharp developmental segment, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. The A stands for arterial anomalies. So this is an arteriogram of the arteries inside the brain. One side should look the same as the other side, but you can appreciate with these arrows that it's not as bright and you can't see blood flowing through those vessels on the left-hand side because there's narrowing of that artery. C stands for cardiac defects. So this can be a hole in the heart. It can be a problem with the aorta, which is the major artery that carries blood from the heart to the rest of the body. Eye abnormalities, um, which can run the gamut from problems with the front of the eye, the back of the eye, and the hemangioma does not have to involve the eye to see this. And then some people call it faces or facies syndrome. They include an S because there can also be sternal abnormalities. The sternum is that bone that's kind of in color in this picture. So most patients don't have all of these, right? Most patients will only have a couple of these different things. Um, And so there's different uh, criteria that were established in 2009 so that we could decide who has definite face, who has possible face, and who doesn't have face or is unlikely to have it. So what else do we know about it? A study in 2010 um, by Hagstrom et al. estimated the risk of face in infants with large facial hemangiomas to be about 31% and large counted as an area of at least 22 square centimeters. And that was a prospective study, meaning they looked at infants from the time they were born and the time they developed their hemangioma and followed them over time. With the, another study from the UK estimated that risk uh, to be at about 58%, which was significantly higher. And so with the current understanding of risk for face, any child with a facial hemangioma of greater than or equal to five centimeters receives a full workup for the syndrome. But then you have this clinical question. These two infants both have large facial hemangiomas, but are they at equal risk? Do they both have the same risk of having face when their hemangiomas look so different? So we have a little bit of data to guide us on this. The Hagstrom study that looked at those infants with the large facial hemangiomas, broke it down into different facial segments. And so 85% of patients with S1 involvement, uh, or 85% of patients with face had segment one involved. 73% had segment three involved and 45% had two or more segments. Now only 15% had segment two involved, but the prevalence of facial segments involved in patients without face weren't reported in this paper. So conclusions regarding the risk associated with these segments can't really be drawn. And then what about parotid hemangiomas? So these are a special type of hemangioma. They tend to be very deep in the skin. They don't really have that super obvious bright red plaque on top of them they fall into the category of segmental hemangiomas by virtue of their size and location. But there is this question that a lot of people were noticing, which seemed like we were doing a lot of face workups on carotid hemangiomas and not really finding a whole lot of patients who met criteria. So do we really need to be doing this in these patients? So our research question was, in children with large facial hemangiomas, Are there specific patterns of expression that are associated with higher or lower risk of face syndrome? In other words, are there clinical features that we could use that would provide more data driven and more cost effective screening of at risk children? So, why do we care, right? There's two main reasons that this is kind of important. So, propranolol has become the standard of care for treatment of large hemangiomas. There was a A paper that showed retrospectively that oral propranolol does appear to be safe to use in patients with face syndrome, but there's a potential risk of using a blood pressure lowering agent in patients who might be at increased risk for stroke because of those arterial anomalies we talked about earlier. Severe coarctation of the aorta, which is one of those cardiac abnormalities where the aorta is very narrowed. Um, which is a potential feature of face syndrome, is also a contraindication to using beta blocker therapy. So you can't use propranolol in those patients. On the flip side, if you wait to start propranolol therapy until you can evaluate a patient fully for face syndrome, that might increase your risk of complications from the hemangioma, like painful ulceration or visual obstruction. The second issue is the need for general anesthesia during face syndrome evaluation. So more recently, there has been some caution emphasized regarding the potential effects of general anesthesia on the developing brain in young infants. And so most infants are going to require general anesthesia for an MRI and an MRA, so Magnetic Resonance Imaging and Magnetic Resonance Angiogram with this particular type of gadolinium contrast in order to fully evaluate them for face syndrome, because it's a long study and they can't really sit still for that long. They need to be very, very still to be able to see what's going on. We also know that gadolinium contrast is deposited in the brain of otherwise healthy patients, including children. We don't really know what that means. We don't know what the effect of that is. There's also some pretty substantial time and cost associated with getting these imaging studies, often including hospital admission, which might be required in order to expedite the actual evaluation. So this was a collaborative effort, thanks to Pedra, with 13 pediatric dermatology referral centers across the United States and Canada, because this is a pretty rare syndrome. We don't see it very often. So in order to get a large number of patients, we all sort of banded together and combined our experience to look at these patients and see if we could figure out if this is something that we can predict based on patient characteristics. So in order to be included in the study, the patients had to have a hemangioma on or above the neck. They had to be worked up for face syndrome, meaning check for cardiac abnormalities with an echocardiogram, check for eye abnormalities with an eye exam, and have an MRI or an MRA to check for brain and arterial anomalies. Between August 1st of 2009 and December 31st of 2014. We also used either pictures or standardized diagrams depending on the site to confirm facial segment locations. So, we ended up with 238 subjects that had that were included in the analysis and 44.5% of those patients had face syndrome. Um, This is a reminder of kind of those facial segments that we use um, in terms of talking about what the risk is for some of our patients. So these are the results for our demographics, and there's a lot of stuff up here, but I want to call your attention to a couple of things. One is that we had a lot, a majority of female patients, both in the face group and the not face group. And that's pretty comparable to other prior studies of patients with hemangiomas, because we know that hemangiomas are more common in female infants. We also had a majority of white or Caucasian patients, and that's also pretty consistent with prior um, studies on the incidence of hemangiomas. Looking at hemangioma characteristics, sorry, none of these were just looking at them like this without controlling for anything else, none of these were significantly associated with the presence or absence of face. In contrast, when you look at the hemangioma characteristics, there were several different spots. So bilateral location, involvement of the S1, S4, scalp or neck locations, an area of greater than 25 square centimeters, and at least three or more locations. All of these appeared to be associated with an increased risk of face. But we did a multivariable analysis, which means that we tried to control for the effects that all of these different characteristics have on each other to determine what's really the, the causes that we need to look at and the higher risk factors. So this sort of outlines the uh, p-value and odds ratios, meaning, you know, for example, race other than white, they're 3.25 times more likely to have face than someone who was white, and that p-value is less than 0.05, which means that it is statistically significant. So what we got from this is that high-risk features are potentially race other than white, Hispanic ethnicity three or more locations, an area greater than or equal to 25 square centimeters. Low risk features were involvement of the parotid, so that special type of hemangioma I showed you earlier, the S2 segment being involved, and then potentially the neck, but I put a little asterisk there and we'll come back to that. When we looked at different subgroups of hemangiomas, we looked at unilateral, meaning one-sided single location hemangiomas. No single location had a higher risk than any other single location. So no segment had a higher risk. But if you had multiple involved, that raised your risk. There were 15 patients with a one-sided, purely deep carotid hemangioma, meaning it didn't have that red-black on top of it. And three of those 15 patients had FACE syndrome. Similarly, there were 23 patients who just had one-sided S2 hemangioma, a very low-risk segment, but four of those 23 patients still had FACE syndrome. So we did not find any characteristics either of the patient or of the hemangioma that said there is a 0% risk of FACE. So there's a couple discussion points. One was this collapse of the race variable. Basically, we didn't have a lot of other types of race other than white. Um, so we ended up having to combine black, Asian, Native Pacific Islander, things like that, all into one category, um, which may have affected our results and could have potentially, you know, skewed things one way or the other. We also know that there were a lot of unknown ethnicities and races um, for a lot of our patients up to 20%. Uh, We didn't know what their ethnicity or race was, which makes it difficult to draw strong conclusions about that. There was also a change in the diagnostic criteria after this data was collected. So we did have to reclassify some of these patients, and in that reclassification, a decent number of them changed from having no face syndrome to definite or possible face syndrome. So the diagnostic criteria were more inclusive. Um, And then there's this complicated meaning of neck involvement. I put that asterisk there before, because when you look at the neck involvement without accounting for anything else, it looks like neck is a high risk factor but then when you do that multivariable analysis and account for everything else, neck becomes a low risk factor. So what does that mean? It basically means we don't know exactly the relationship between neck and race, but we know that it is tied to the presence of bilateral hemangiomas, large hemangiomas, involvement of that S3 segment, And there's some relationship there that when you account for those things, the direction of that neck relationship, whether it's protective or um, high risk, changes. So we can't really use neck involvement looking at any one given kid to determine whether or not they're high or low risk. There's some limitations to our study. So it was retrospective, meaning we looked back on patients who had already been seen and collected the data from their medical record. Like I said, we were missing or had incomplete data regarding gestational age, birth weight, um, ethnicity, race. So all of those are things that were potentially um, affecting our results. We had to estimate the sizes of some of these hemangiomas. When the hemangiomas were really large, We weren't really measuring them and putting that in the medical record. So we had to guesstimate, based off of the photographs that the patients had, what size um, category that hemangioma fell into. And then the presence of any confounding variables, meaning was there something else that we didn't even collect, some piece of information that we missed that might be important in predicting face risk. There's was also a very low number of parotid hemangiomas. And this could be because people had already sort of had the feeling that these were lower risk and may not have been working these patients up as frequently. So we don't really know and can't really say for sure whether, you know, what to do with those parotid hemangiomas. So some future directions that we hope to be able to look at is, are there certain hemangioma patterns that suggest greater or lesser risk for more severe signs or symptoms of face. So there's a very wide spectrum of face syndrome. And is there a way that we can predict who might have severe or more symptomatic face syndrome than someone else? Um, We also want to look at treatment patterns and complications, both from the treatment and the hemangiomas themselves in both face and non-face patients. And then potentially examining the usefulness of a modified face workup, meaning checking that echocardiogram or that eye exam without necessarily getting the MRI or the MRA, which it suggests could potentially give people a false sense of security if they don't complete that workup. So to answer our question that we had from the very beginning, These patients don't have the same risk of having face syndrome. So this patient on the left is very high risk. They have multiple sites involved. They have both sided S1. They have S3 involved on that upper lip there. So, and it's a very wide area that's involved. So that patient is at very high risk. It's also bilateral. So lots of check marks in terms of high risk things. And then the patient on the right-hand side is very low risk. They have a single segment involved. That segment is S2, and it's not very big. So in conclusion, we know that high-risk infants, basically kids with a hemangioma taking up at least 25 square centimeters or three or more segmental locations should be prioritized for face workup as quickly and efficiently as possible. Low-risk infants, on the other hand, those with parotid or S2 segment involvement, really need a shared decision-making discussion with the clinician and parents regarding the timing and extent of that full face workup. And then lastly, race and ethnicity may also play a role in risk, but we really need further studies in order to be able to comment on that more clearly. So I hope you enjoyed this presentation and thank you for listening.